0: Well, hey, good morning. How you doing? We are in a series um, this fall, studying the Ten Commandments, and we are today on the Ninth Commandment, so we're getting near the end of this series, which is good because it appears we're getting near the end of fall, right? And uh, we've seen a little bit of weather change in the last couple, three days. We've got two more commandments hang with us. We are going to be in Commandment 9 from Exodus 20. The command is simply this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And I hope as we go through this series that you're picking up more than just what the commandments say, maybe some of the broader themes or the heart behind the commandments. Uh, God's 10 commandments were not just rules of things that we shouldn't do. Uh, He was going after something much greater. He was going after our hearts. Often in the commands, you'll see a command like don't murder, don't steal, don't take the name of the Lord in vain, remember the Sabbath. Those are particular things, but they're underlying underneath them themes or broader areas. When it says don't commit adultery, it's expanded on by Jesus. It says don't even lust. Don't commit murder. Don't hate somebody. You're going to see the same thing with this command. It talks on its surface about bearing false witness, but it gets into areas of truthfulness and integrity that run far deeper and should be more convicting. When we read this verse, you shall not commit Um, false witness against your neighbor, here's here's what's in mind. Don't perjure yourself. Don't walk into a courtroom and don't give false testimony if you are a witness in in a criminal trial. That's the surface level of this commandment. And if you think about it, their justice system 5,000 years ago, our justice system today, it's built off a foundation of truthfulness. There's nothing more scary than a corrupt judge or a jury that's been tampered with or a bribed police officer or compromised evidence or a false witness. Entire legal system is based off honesty. Those involved need to make sure that they're truthful in their testimony. It's interesting, Deuteronomy 19 verse 15, I'll put this up on the screen, it expands on this a little bit. It says this, it says a single witness will not suffice against a person, get this, For any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that has been committed. That kind of covers everything, right? Any crime, any wrong that's committed. It goes on and says, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Look at verse 16. It says, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing... Then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, get this, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your myths so what that verse is saying is this if you're a false witness and you walk into a court and you give a false testimony and that's discovered you will now bear the penalty of the man that you were testifying against that would keep our courtrooms a little more honest today wouldn't you think goes on it gives this other protection in Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 we read this on the evidence of two or three wit or two witnesses or of three witnesses the one who is to die shall be put to death a person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness then it says this, it says the hand of the witness shall be the first against him to put him to death and afterward the hand of all the people. So what this says is if there's going to be a, a charge against somebody and they're going to be put to death, the witnesses, if that person is going to be stoned, they throw the first stone. It, it's one thing to bear false witness. It's another thing to throw a stone against the person That you bore false witness against. So there were protections in the Old Testament law to encourage the truthfulness of those who were called to testify. What if there were no witnesses? What if there was a crime committed, but there wasn't two witnesses? There wasn't three witnesses. It was alone. There were no witnesses to the crime. Well, it's interesting in the Old Testament, in those cases, you took that matter to the priest, and symbolically, the priest was representing God to the people, so you were taking it before the Lord. And, and what the Old Testament was saying is if there's not witnesses to the crime, if it can't be proven, you've got to trust the Lord. Paul expands on this in Romans 12, verse 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So, In the case where there were no witnesses to verify the crime, you weren't allowed to take vengeance and you weren't allowed to take justice into your own hands. You were in a position where you had to trust the Lord in those matters. And now we're getting to the heart of what command number nine is all about. The big idea today is just simply this. The biggest lie we tell ourselves is that God doesn't see. The biggest lie we tell ourselves is that God doesn't see. Not all accusations, not all trials happen in courtrooms. It's interesting, in the New Testament, let's talk about church for a minute. In First Timothy 5.19, we read this. It says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This verse is misunderstood when people read it without understanding the Old Testament context. They're like, oh, so the elders get extra protection. you got to have two or three witnesses. That's not what it's saying at all. What it's saying is if you're going to bring a charge against one of the authorities in the church, they're allowed the same protection as anyone else would be allowed, that was afforded to anyone else. It's not special protection for the elders. It's saying don't go after your authorities because there's something in our heart that we tend to just want to be critical of our authorities. Not at this church. It was a previous church that I was at. I was serving as an elder, and a dispute in this church broke out between two brothers. Their their parents had gotten old. They both were suffering from dementia. They had to be put into a, a nursing home, and one of the brothers was the executor of the estate, and the other brother became angry because before the parents died, he was distributing the estate of the parents. And the brother was saying, that's not right, he shouldn't be doing that. So we were called in, me and another elder, to mediate the dispute between brothers. And when I say dispute, it was hostile. It had broken the relationship. And as we unpacked what had happened and what the trustee had actually done, he had distributed some of the parents' estate, specifically a rifle, a kitchen table, and a teacup, I don't think it totaled in value, $500. The table, because the parents didn't live at the home and one of the grandkids needed it, he had said, go ahead and take the table. He didn't want a gun in an empty house. He'd given that to one of the other relatives. I can't explain the (laughs) teacups. And in deciding this dispute, we sided with the brother who was the trustee. So I went to the next elders meeting, and the brother who wasn't the trustee who we had decided against showed up at the meeting we're like, okay, is there any open business? He said, yeah, I need to bring, Aunt David was sent up on sin charges. And I'm like, okay, what have I done? You bore false witness. How did I bear false witness? Well, you didn't take my side. And I was right, you were a false witness. Okay, did you bring any witnesses? Yeah, my parents. Well, the whole point was they have dementia and they weren't in the room. He's a little flustered. He goes, well, I'm bringing you up on sin charge of pride. I'm like, do you have any witnesses? He's like, everybody. I'm like, I walked myself into that. I'll admit it, okay? So I kind of walked myself into that dead end. But the point was in this meeting, it was interesting. If the first charge doesn't stick, I'm going to bring another, and I'm going to bring another, and I'm going to bring another. Be really careful. His church leaders, one of the things that we are charged to do, it's Clearly given to us in Second Timothy 4, we're charged to preach the word. There's words like reproach, rebuke, exhort. Be it from the pulpit or in the counseling rooms at our church, shockingly, sometimes we say things that people don't like. And when they leave this place, they talk. Be very careful that you don't accept a charge against an elder without two or three witnesses. And by the way, this goes way beyond church. The Bible has so much to say. I could spend the rest of our time just talking about authorities. Be careful that you are not bringing false witness or accepting false witness against your boss, against your parents, against politicians, all of it. We're not to bear or receive false witness. Here's another situation. How about the court of public opinion? There's a quote that says, a lie is halfway around the world before the truth has got its boots on. That's attributed to Mark Twain. I couldn't prove that it came from him. Maybe it's from Mark Twain. Here's what I know. That was over 100 years ago. If if that quote was given before the technology that we have today, before the internet, if it was true 100 years ago, could we say that it's more true today? Here's a quote from over 300 years ago by a man by the name of Jonathan Swift. He said this in 1710. It says, if a lie be believed only for an hour, it has done its work and there is no further occasion for it. Falsehood flies and the truth comes limping after it. So that, when man, uh, so that when men come to be undeceived, it is too late. The jest is over. The tale has had its effect. People love to hear lies and as they spread, once they spread, even a retraction makes it very difficult to undo that lie. 20 years ago, I think it was right around 2002, my father-in-law had passed away. He had a large home in Grand Haven and we put that home up for sale And as we were in the process of trying to sell that home and have showings, um, our our UPS guy, Bill, came to the door one day. Now, you got to understand, my wife's relationship with our UPS men, they become part of the family. We buy them Christmas gifts. It's like a thing, okay? And so she's chatting. She's witnessing to him. She's inviting him to church. All of this is going on. And Bill's very comfortable with us. He goes, hey, would you guys mind? He goes, one of the people on my route, they're just really nosy. They're always asking about what's going on back here, and they're they're kind of a gossip. Would it be okay if I just told the one person, because I want to see how far it spreads, that I've been delivering packages up to your dad's house for Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston? That kind of dates the story. And we thought it was kind of amusing, so we were like, yeah, sure, not a problem. Told one person delivering packages to Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston that they were in the process of buying the house. Within two weeks, we were reading about that in the Grand Haven Tribune. It was all over the schools. It was all over town. One person. Earlier this fall, I had somebody approach me go, you remember when Brad Pitt and Jana, Jennifer Anderson were in town to buy your parents' house? Like we were in, oh, we saw them at the restaurant. No, you didn't. It was made up. It wasn't true. Once it starts, that's the danger of our untruthfulness. We live in a society, we swim in a sea of untruthfulness. Our culture has been referred to as postmodern, the idea that all truth is relative, that there isn't even absolute truth. The faith trust that Americans have in their institutions, be it government, church, schools, or corporations, is at an all-time low. Why? Because we're experiencing lack of integrity at all levels. Just just so we're clear, a, a lie is with or without intent to communicate what is not true. Give you some statistics about lying from our culture. These shouldn't shock you. The average child begins to lie by the time he is two years of age. 40% of resumes and 90% of dating sites contain lies. Shocking, right? 32% of patients lie to their doctors. So their doctors are trying to figure out what's wrong with you, and they ask you a question like, do you smoke? No, not me. 32%. There was a study done, just kind of a controlled study. They had adults meeting each other for the first time, having 10-minute conversations, and then they interviewed the adults after the 10-minute first introductory conversation they had with a stranger. 60% of them admitted, weren't caught, admitted to lying in that 10-minute conversation. It's estimated the average person lies four times a day. Men six times, women three. I was thinking about that. By the way, men also think that we're better at lying than women. I guess practice makes perfect, right? Right. I I do think there's probably some truth to that. As we we teach marriage conferences and talk about roles of men and women, we often get down to the the core root that men are wired for significance, women are wired for security. Because men are wired for security, or or for significance, we tend to embellish stories more. We tend to tell grander tales. Four times a day, the average person lies. And by the way, I know these stats are true. I got them all off the internet. Um... (laughs) As soon as life gets hard, we walk away from our oaths, our promises. Marriage, it gets difficult. We've got friends whispering in our ears, you deserve to be happy, and on life goes. If if an authority, a parent, a boss, a teacher, that they're unreasonable, well, that gives us the right to lie. We can revolt, we cannot do the things that we said. That we were going to do and in this culture where lying is so prevalent god is not amused not only are the people lying in the culture the culture actually lies there's an author by the name of david brooks he wrote a new york times opinion piece in april of 19 entitled five lies our culture tells here here they are from his list he says career success is fulfilling if if you make it then life will be good all you've got to do is be successful and then you'll be satisfied all your problems will go away Culture tells us that I can make myself happy. It's the lie of self-sufficiency. And he contrasts that lie, and he says, you know, it's interesting. People, uh, There's been studies done, research done, where people are interviewing people that are on their deathbeds. And as they reflect on their lives, and they talk about their level of happiness and joy, very seldom is that joy attached to what they accomplished or where they went or what they did or what they owned. It's attached to the relationships that they formed throughout their lifetimes. The lie that life is an individual journey. Whoever has the most experiences win. And and what this does is it tells people to disattach, to not make commitments, to keep yourself free, to be able to pursue whatever option comes your way. But once again, study after study has confirmed that the people that tend to be most happy in life tend to stay pretty stable. They Stay at the same job. They live in the same neighborhood. They're involved in the same organizations. They have relationships that have endured the test of time, and trust has been built slowly over the years. Our culture tells us that you have to find your own truth, that everybody has to choose their own values, and we have to come up with our own answers to life's ultimate questions. David Brooks says this. He goes, the problem with that is unless your name is Aristotle, you probably can't do it. And he points out that most of our values and most of the things that we cherish are actually passed down and given to us from others. And here's the fifth lie, that rich and successful people are worth more. And Brooks makes a comment, he goes, this isn't a lie that we admit to, and this isn't a lie that we would even say that people say. But if you look at advertising and if you look at the way that our culture functions, it's very clearly that even though we don't want to admit it, that this lie is often assumed so we live in a sea and in a culture where lying is predominant. Why we lie, I don't think I have to explain this. We're all good at it, right? We know. In in our text, it's don't bear false witness. So obviously sometimes we lie to hurt others, that we've got malice. We're trying to cause pain. We gossip. The problem with gossip is the victim never gets to defend themselves. Proverbs 18.8 says... The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Proverbs 26.20 says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarrels cease. We lie to hurt others. We lie to protect ourselves. If they knew the truth, if I was honest here, then they wouldn't think as highly of me. I'm worried about what the consequences would be. We lie to protect ourselves. We lie to put ourselves in a better light our nature to deceive. I I, I promise you, I don't know that you could prove the stats on this, but I'm pretty sure that more people posted on Facebook last Thursday when it was 70 degrees and they were out kayaking and jogging and enjoying the day than they were this morning when they were putting salt down and scraping their windows. Always putting your life in a better light to avoid offending. One of my favorite commercials over the last 10 years was by the Insurance company Progressive. They had Abraham Lincoln come down the stairs. His wife's there, and she says, "Hey, does this dress make my bottom look big?" Well, he's in a box, right? Like he doesn't want to admit to that. He doesn't want to be honest. He doesn't want to offend. A couple weeks ago, um, I I got a new shirt. I really like the shirt. I've been wearing it to work about once a week. It's in the rotation of the shirts that I wear. And uh, my wife goes, "You know, that's a pajama top." (laughs) I'm like, "It is not." She goes, it is. I, I wanted to tell you a couple of weeks ago, but I didn't want to hurt your feelings. And I kind of tried to hide it, but you keep finding it. You can't wear that to work. I'm like, it is not a pajama top. So I go check the tag. It's, it's MeUndies. I'm pretty sure it was a pajama top, okay? And it's like, why didn't you tell me the first time? Oh, hurt my feelings. Like, don't let me wear pajamas to work to avoid offending Sometimes we just lie for the thrill of it. What we can get away with, what we can cause people to believe. There's many reasons why we lie, how we lie. We lie with our words, partial truths, imprecise speech which leads to false conclusions, slanting our description of an event in our favor to make ourselves the star of the show. 100% words. We're, We're in an argument with our spouse and we go, well, you never... How come you always, and all of a sudden the accusation that's coming out of our mouth is more severe than the actual offense. It's not that Kristen did something or I did something, now I'm accused of always doing that thing. So immediately I'm on the defensive. In these 100% words that we use, it's false witness. We're accusing somebody of more than they've done. It's like throwing gasoline on a fire. It is an accelerant to the argument, and Kristen and I call each other out on this all the time. If I come home and it's like, hey, how come you never? And she's like, never? I've never done that in my whole life, 39 years. Like, we've never, like, don't let it happen. It's false witness. Exaggeration. A statement that represents something is better or worse than it really is. 20 years ago, I made a hire. Young guy, desperate for the position that he was filled, very, very talented, wanted to hire him. I oversold the position. And a year later, He was frustrated in the job because I'd created an expectation that was now unmet. He was frustrated with me because I hadn't been truthful. It just didn't end well. Over the last few months, as we've been hiring staff, be it Ben or be it Jordan or whoever we've hired, it's always like, hey, let me describe what you're walking into. Here's what the expectations are going to be. Here's where the church is. Here's the good and the bad. And I'll often follow back with them four months, six months later and go, hey, was I truthful? Because I don't want to oversell because it's bearing false witness and flattery. Sometimes we lie just with flattery. A couple of weeks ago, I preached a message on um, the sixth command, you shall not murder. It was on the issue of sanctity of life. I got a call that week. Some of them didn't attend our church. They had heard my message and they're like, man, that is the best message I've ever heard on sanctity of life. Like man, thank you. By the way, I'm raising money for. You get it right? Just flattery. Not only do we lie with our words, we lie with our actions. I'm talking about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or belief to which you do not, to which one's own behavior does not conform. It's interesting. I think about the misperceptions people have. When they think about Jesus, he didn't have flowy, sandy, blonde hair. He probably didn't have green eyes, and he probably wasn't just saying things that everybody longed to hear every day. In Matthew 23, Jesus is angry. He's hot. And the issue is he's angry at the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, seven times he says, woe to you. Six times... In verse 13, 15, 23, 25, 27, and 29, almost every odd verse in the chapter, Jesus is saying these words, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You want to know what gets Jesus angry? When our actions don't match who we claim to be. It says in verse 25 of Matthew 23, you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Says in verse twenty-seven, you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. Samuel is trying to pick the king that is going to replace Saul, and the prophet goes to Jesse, David's father. He's looking at the different brothers. And the Lord says to him, don't look on his appearance or his height or his stature. I've rejected him. Speaking of another brother, he goes, for the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Prophet Jeremiah says, uh, or God says through the prophet Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Again, the biggest lie we tell ourselves is that God doesn't see. And as Christians, I'm just telling you, this is a lot more than bearing false witness in a courtroom. We have got to be careful about the way that we communicate in a culture that has embraced lying as a way of life. If you were to take our culture and poll them and say, what is it that you dislike most about Christianity? The top three responses that will show up on the board are these three. Christians are judgmental, they're hypocrites, and they're complaining all the times about how tough they have it when they really don't have it that tough. All of those things relate to the things that we say and the way that we choose to live. As it relates to our words, God's given us a mouth. He's given us the ability to communicate. Why did he do that? So that we can praise him and bless others. So we can praise him and bless others. It's that simple. And as followers of Christ, we have to do a better job. Here's a third way that we lie in silence. William Barclay, he's a theologian, he said it this way, the sin of silence is as real as the sin of speech. Leaving an untruth untruth believed. Listen, as followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot affirm what is not true. It's bearing false witness. And where this gets real practical in our culture, I can't call a boy a girl. A hundred years from now, maybe some archaeologist is going to dig up my bones And if he does, he will know definitively beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm a male, irregardless of what I thought I was. This isn't helping when we affirm what isn't true. I'm not allowed, as a pastor or somebody who's counseling someone else, I'm not allowed to, I I can't just leave the truth untold. I can't allow them to embrace the lie that they are just a victim or they are defined by their disorder or their addiction. Yes, you may have been a victim, there's no doubt, and you may struggle with addiction or anxiety or depression and all of those things, but you are not the label associated with those things. You are not a victim and you are not your disease or addiction. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a child of the king, and Romans 8 tells us that we're more than conquerors through him who loves us. We can't leave the truth unsaid. It's bearing false witness. Okay, so when we lie, just a couple more things. Who gets hurt? Obviously others. The question that dominates all of our soul care at this church, the question that comes up in almost every case is this question. I've written this on the board so many times. How do you trust someone who has proven to be untrustworthy? You think that ever comes up in family relationships? You think that ever comes up in marriages? You think that ever comes up in Relational matters, how do you trust somebody who's proven to be untrustworthy? And underlying that question is that when people break trust, it hurts. It's devastating. Other people get hurt. Proverbs twelve eighteen says this, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts do a lot of damage with words. Proverbs 16:28 says a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. How many friendships, how many brothers' relationships have been destroyed because of our lies? Not only do we hurt other people, we hurt ourselves. In 2015 there was a study a research project. It was called The Psychology of Dishonesty. How does it impact health? It was put out by researchers from the University of California, Berkeley, and Harvard. And what they found this shouldn't surprise us is that dishonesty affects our brains, our bodies, and our biology. Now, now this is something that we know. We're, we're aware of polygraph tests that you can get hooked up to a machine that's going to measure physical symptoms to be able to detect whether or not you're lying. We know this is to be true, but listen to what the study said. So this, it says lying, and I quote, lying, being selfish, cheating, and engaging in infidelity are associated with a suite of negative health outcomes such as elevated heart rate, increased blood pressure, vasoconstriction, elevated cortisol, I don't even know what that is, I don't want it, and a significant depletion of the brain regions needed for appropriate emotional and psychological regulation. Man, that's a lot of words. Can I summarize that for you? Lying makes you unhealthy and irrational. Stresses you out. Who's going to find out? How do I keep all of these lies straight? The guilt and shame of the person that you've wounded through not telling the truth. It, it takes a physical toll. The study goes on to say, and again I quote, Telling the truth, being altruistic, acting fairly, and being generally other-oriented are virtues directly linked to a suite of positive health outcomes such as better health, don't lie, or better health and physical wellness, lower stress, decreased cellular aging, increased psychological well-being, and longevity of life. So he's saying, listen, you want to have better health? It's not about going to the gym. Quit lying. I'm convicted, I'm never lying about going to the gym again. Like, that's just a double whammy right there. Don't lie. It has physical aspects, too. I remember when I was starting my career, my father-in-law, Bob Van Campen, he was a very successful businessman, he sat me down, he goes, listen, I want to give you the best advice I could ever give you. It was two words, don't lie. I'm like, okay, I'm a Christian, you've like, you got to be able to do better than that. And I went off and I worked in securities. I traded commodities. I was a securities trader. I did real estate. Best advice I ever got because early in my career, lying would have made things a whole lot easier. Just just little embellishments, little things. There were many times where I really believed that telling the untruth would have gained me the momentary advantage. I, re- I remember chasing real estate deals and I couldn't get deals done because I wasn't li- willing to lie and tell the buyer I was going to pay an inflated price and then whittle it down later. I wasn't getting control of deals. Like, like it would have been so advantageous just to lie. But over long seasons of a career, the thing that equated to success was integrity. Late in my career, guys, just picking up the phone and just saying, I, I know you're going to shoot honest with me. What do you think? What will you pay? Not having to go find deals, deals came to me because... My word meant something. We hurt ourselves when we lie. It's interesting, George Orwell said it this way, in a time of universal deceit, telling the truth is a revolutionary act. Okay, so what's the goal? What's the goal in all this? Just two things. I'm going to quote right from Ephesians 4, speak the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. We've said around here often, grace without truth is hypocrisy. Grace without truth is hypocrisy. Truth without grace is brutality. There are ways to communicate the truth that aren't helping, they're actually brutal. I told this story last night. I remember Cal was... um, 18, and he uh, just turned 18. He'd been 18 for a couple months, and we were sitting around the dinner table. All the kids were there, and Kristen was trying to um, just give spiritual wisdom, spiritual truth, and I'm trying not to be too disruptive while she does it. That was kind of how our kids were raised at the kitchen table. And this particular night, she's going off on a rift about drinking. Well, none of you drink. Like, you guys aren't drinking. You're underage. It's wrong. You know, all of this. She's going off on that. And she goes, and I don't want you smoking either. It's bad for your health. I don't want you smoking. That's bad. And she looks at Calvin. and She goes, Calvin, you don't smoke, do you? And Calvin answers. He goes, only with dad. (laughs) (laughs) We we had a cigar when he turned 18. I didn't think it was that big a deal. But that's what came out. Only with dad. It was the truth. It was brutal. Okay? (laughs) The kids were dismissed. I was now in trouble. And after a private conversation with my wife, Catherine was at the service last night. She's reminding me, she goes, oh, do you remember what happened next? Kristen went down to see the rest of the kids and be like, did you know about them smoking and you didn't tell us? Because now she wanted to know how deep the lie went. And you were screaming from the bedroom, save yourselves, lie, lie. (laughs) Lie. Obviously, I'm joking, but that's a funny story. It's a true story. But we can hurt people with the truth as well. And I think sometimes we need to pause and say, am I using the right tone? Is this the right time? Are they in a position where they can receive it? What is the motive behind the truth that I'm communicating? Speak the truth in love. Here's a second one, integrity. Ephesians 4.25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. That word falsehood in Ephesians 4.25 is interesting. Therefore, having put away falsehood, that word in the Greek is pseudo. Do you guys know what pseudo is? Like a, like a pseudonym, if I'm a writer and I write as a pseudonym, I'm writing under a fictitious name. It's a counter personality or a counter ego. In essence, what it's saying when it's saying put away falsehood, I'd say it this way, be who you are wherever you are. Be who you are wherever you are. I played soccer in high school. I played soccer through college When I got done with college, I was still in my 20s playing competitive soccer. In my 30s, I was playing recreational soccer. I bought an indoor soccer facility up in Norton Shores. I owned that for 20 years. And in my 40s, I was playing in over 40 rec leagues. I planted a church in our community just a couple years earlier, so now I was a pastor playing in an over 40 men's rec league at a facility that I owned. One night, I, I wasn't even supposed to play. It wasn't my team. They were short players. I jumped in. They asked me if I would play. I said, sure. Right before kickoff, I looked across. There was this other guy in the over 40 rec league. He was going to be matched up with me all night. He, would a, he put in a mouth guard. That's a bad sign. <laughs> and uh, it was just going to be one of those nights. So I got the ball. We were banging for a little bit. And it was very physical between the two of us, very physical. And we're kind of bouncing back and forth. I'm tired of getting hit by this guy. And then I did it. I, I, I threw the elbow. Right in his jaw. Just clocked him. Foul was called on him. I really enjoyed that part of the story. (laughs) Their bench saw. I knew. I'd lost my temper through the elbow. Subbed out. Haven't played soccer since. That was it. I was done. I never played at our facility again. Why? Why? because I want to be who I am wherever I am, and I don't think it's a really good optic for the pastor of the local church to be throwing elbows at the soccer facility. Well, why didn't you just clean up your play? I wasn't positive that I could. And the truth is, I'd rather forgo the thing that I enjoyed than be a pseudo of who I claim to be in another arena. I never played again. Not proud of that, I'm just saying that it's real. We've got to be committed to put away falsehood If we're going to be followers of Jesus Christ, be who you are, wherever you are. So just as we close, just a couple checks. Maybe some questions we should ask ourselves before we're so quick to speak. Here's number one. Does this need to be said? Does this need to be said? There's a second cousin to that. I have no ear for that. Sometimes maybe that's what we need to say when somebody is saying what doesn't need to be said. The Puritan Thomas Watson said this, he said, he that carries a slander carries the devil in his tongue, and he that receives it, the devil in his ear. Is any of this getting convicting for you guys? It's interesting. So last night, we were with another couple. We ordered pizza, and as we were eating pizza, we were just relaxing and I started to tell a story about something that happened five years ago, and all of a sudden in the story, I'm disparaging one of the other people in the story. Now, what I said was true. It just didn't need to be said. I preached this message last night. You guys are aware of that? I don't think it was 25 minutes. And I'm sitting there going, what am I doing? Does it need to be said? And being quicker to the draw on, I don't have ears for this. Putting an end to hurtful talk. Here's a second thing. Would the other side agree? If the other side was standing right here and I'm explaining what happened or I'm explaining the circumstances or the details, would the other side standing here be in agreement with the way that I'm telling the story? Or am I nuancing my communication to slant it in a way that is unfair or untrue? Here's a third who is being elevated? But what's the point of saying this? Is it to elevate myself? Have I spoken directly? I don't want to talk to others about things that I haven't talked to the individual, particularly in a conflict, before I've talked to them. When I'm in conflict, one of the things that I like to say, if if I were in a discussion and that discussion's getting heated and there's something going on, I'm like, hey, just know, everything that I say in this room, you're welcome to quote me when you leave here. Nothing's private. Anything I say, feel free to quote me on this. It helps me guard my tongue. I'm not going to say things in private that I wouldn't say directly. And then, fifthly, is there an integrity gap? Am I in a position where I feel comfortable that even me saying these things isn't creating a duplicity, a lack of integrity? So as we close, the plan was, I was going to take you to Acts 5. And in Acts 5, it's the story in the early church of a married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a piece of land. They're under no obligation to give the proceeds to the church, but they decide to give the proceeds to the church, which was a generous thing. But when they go to the church, they say, this is all that we sold the land for when actually they'd sold it for more. And Ananias goes first. He appears before the apostles. He goes, hey, here's a, we sold this piece of land. We want to give you all the money. He drops dead. Two hours later, his wife comes in. She doesn't know what's happened to her husband. The apostle asks her. He goes, you sell this land, and is this what you sold it for? She's like, absolutely. She drops dead. It's a wonderful little ditty. It's Acts 5. You should read it, okay? And at the end of the story, it says this. It says, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. I bet it did. I bet in that season the church understood that God sees and that he takes our lies seriously. But I don't think sin is the or I don't think fear is the best motivator for our truthfulness. It's interesting this week in John 18. Jesus is on trial for his life. First he appears before the high priest and the religious leaders. And they start questioning him on his teachings. And his answer is telling. He goes, why are you asking me about my teachings? I've never taught privately. Everything I've said has been said before everybody. Go talk to anybody. I'm not any different as in private than I am when I've been out there. Everything about me has been transparent. And a soldier hit him, struck him in the face. And Jesus turns and he goes, "Why do you strike me? Where is your witness? Bring him. Like if I've spoken falsely, bring a witness. They didn't have any. They sent him over to Pilate. Stands before Pilate. He goes, the reason that I came was to bear witness to the truth. Pilate says, what is truth? And he hands him over to be crucified. And when Jesus stood on trials for his life, after being in the garden, after praying, after sweating drops of blood about what was going to happen, he stood before two trials and he said the same thing. I've been truthful my entire life. they put him on the cross for it and as i look at the command the ninth command i've just got to tell you i've got to watch my speech more this is convicting as your pastor for me i'm failing in this on multiple levels and i'm looking at it and saying i'm so thankful for the cross that when I fall short, that there's a savior who lived a perfect life in my place, who was truthful at every level. There was no pseudo Jesus. He was the same no matter who he was with. And the love of Jesus brought him to the cross and the truthfulness of Jesus brought him to the cross because he fulfilled what I can't fulfill in the Old Testament law. I'm not encouraging you to be truthful for your reputation, for your witness, or for your health. I'm pleading with you to be truthful on account of your King. Your integrity has nothing to do with anything else but Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your Word. I thank you for who you are. And Father, with our with our words. Let us be quicker to confess. Father, you hate a lying tongue. It's one of the things that you say that you abhor, and yet we're so casual, we're so flippant. Remind us that you see. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.